began our new uh, trimester Sunday school classes, and this one we are talking about worship. And we began asking by asking the question, well, what, what is worship? And we sought to offer, uh, begin offering a definition uh, that we didn't quite get to, and then, uh, so that's what we really want to do today, and then we'll begin tracing uh, the concept of worship uh, throughout the Old Testament, and that will probably take us uh, from this week into the next. Um, So what were some of the things that we said about worship? How is worship maybe generally thought of or defined? When we use the word, what do people mean by worship? Yes. He covered it. Knowing and enjoying God and a lot of other things. Good. (laughs) Other thoughts on those other things? Okay, honoring God, living our lives unto Him every day. Even if you weren't here, just general concepts that maybe you've thought about worship. Um, How's it defined? And not necessarily good ones either. What are the different emphases that people place on worship? Okay, music tends to be the kind of centerpiece of of, of worship uh, in a lot of conversations. Emotions, right, tend to to be very important for many people in worship. We want to feel certain things, uh, and sometimes that can get carried away into one one ditch where that's sort of that's what rules, that's what reigns in worship is uh, emotion. The other side is where uh, we all we simply want is we want our worship to be about certain propositional truths, um, and it doesn't matter how you feel. Uh, or what you feel, just that uh, you're doing it right. right. There's a wrong way and a right way to worship, and um, so you have to worship the right way, or you have to feel really good and emotional. That's kind of the two ditches, I think, that often we fall into. Um, and so this class, what we want to do is talk about bringing those things together. That there is a harmony between worshiping God in spirit and in truth. That we worship God not just with the mind, but with the heart. Um, And in addition to that, worship is not merely something that takes place for about an hour and a half on Sunday morning. Though while we want to be careful not to blur the distinction between corporate worship and private worship, uh, that there is an element of worship that involves the whole life. And so that's largely what we talked about last week. We also said that, what did we say was the difficulty about the word worship and its, the way it's found in Scripture? Why is, what difficulty is presented to us? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the words in the original languages that are used, that we, we translate as worship, don't always mean worship in the way that we mean it. In addition to that, the word worship uh, in English 
has sort of changed meaning over time. That at one point it largely had to do with ascribing worth to something. Uh, and while that certainly is an aspect of worship, if that's all we think of when we talk about worship, it doesn't necessarily convey all that biblical revelation has uh, given to us on the subject. Uh, we talked about Matthew 2 and Matthew 18. Matthew 2, where the, the Magi uh, wanted to go and worship the baby. And then Matthew 18, where the servant falls before his master and employs and not employs him, implores him, uh, same word. And so there's a different meaning there based on context. And so we can't, there's, you know, we don't want to commit the word concept fallacy where wherever the word in English worship appears in our Bibles or even where the word the words translated worship appear in our Bibles that that and only that is where we look to determine what does the Bible say and teach about worship so we have to consider context Uh, we ended and I, I say this already but we ended by saying that worship is a it's kind of a, a place to start. Worship has a life orientation, right? That we have a life that is oriented toward God. And now we need to build upon that. Some have broadly defined worship as our response to God. That it's a a response and while that is, again, good, we need to ask the question, well, if it's a response to God, what is it that, what about God are we responding to? What role does God play in our worship? Because He's not merely an object, but we're responding to Him. And so what about Him? What role does God play in the engagement or relationship that is true and acceptable worship? It's the question that we are asking. And so what, what do you think before we get into that? What, what, in what way are we responding to God in worship? Gratitude? Yeah, so we are responding to God in gratitude for all that He has done for us in creating us and Saving us and sustaining us, sanctifying us, all of these things. And I think with that, I don't know, maybe, maybe I didn't hear you. Maybe you said it, maybe I didn't hear it. We want to, I'd like to add that we, want, we need to discover from God's own self-revelation what He finds as acceptable and pleasing. That's a response to God based upon what He has revealed to us as acceptable and pleasing worship in His sight. And so the importance of this concept cannot be stressed enough. If we're going to worship God at all, we must confess that God has revealed Himself and it is that that pleases Him that we submit ourselves to that revelation in worship. So we are responding, in one sense we can say, worship is a response to God based upon the revelation that He has given to us of Himself. Rather than expressing our own ideas 
about God to God. God has revealed His will for worship in His Word. God has made it clear what worship is and what He expects from His people in worship. It's not a simply a creative endeavor on the part of man to be as innovative as possible. But we kind of, we, and that's a struggle for us, I think, especially today, that in our culture we like innovation. We like creativity. Creativity, innovation is not wrong, it's not bad. But we must be careful to consider what has God, what does God ask of us in regards to worship. So, in terms of the cause and effect of worship, what does the Bible say about God's role? Not only has He shown us what He requires in worship, but He enables us to worship appropriately. God must draw near to us so that we may draw near to Him. A man once... uh, One author said, in particular, we need to take seriously the extraordinary biblical perspective that acceptable worship is something made possible for us by God. God draws near to His people so that they can draw near to Him. Now, there are a few texts that seem to say the opposite of that. Can you think of one? Yeah, uh, in James 4.8, uh, James says that um, you draw near to God and He will draw near to you. And so how do we think about, about that? If we're saying God draws near to us so that we draw near to Him, but then James 4.8 literally says, draw near to God and He will draw near to you. Is, that, is there a conflict there? Yeah, that's good. The whole, the whole the picture painted by the whole of Scripture is that God draws near to us first. He comes to us because, like Romans 3, that no one seeks after God. Jesus in John 6 talks a lot about I'm doing this drawing to myself. Right? Jesus is drawing near and so that we can draw near to Him. And as we think about this, we should think about Creation, right? God creates Adam, and then he goes and uh, kind of hangs out for a while until Adam comes to look for him, right? No, but God creates Adam, and he comes to Adam and charges him with a commission. Uh, Abraham, right? He comes to Abraham. He comes to, before that, Noah, to Moses. He, God initiates a relationship with his people. And as Trisha said, that ultimately God draws near to humanity, to sinful humanity in the person of His Son and enables us to come to Him that we may find rest. Any, any thoughts or questions about that before we press on, Mark? Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's talking to believers here, and he exhorts them to refrain from worldliness 
and uh, in that, rather than drawing near to the world, draw near to God, and, and you, will, you will find Him there, right? That God is not, uh, we're not playing hide and seek with Him, uh, where uh, we're, we're, we're trying to find Him and He's hiding in every nook and cranny that He can find to get away from us, but He is inviting us to come to Him, uh, and when we do, there He is. Um, is that, it's a little hard to hear, but is that basically what you were saying? Pretty okay. All right. Other questions, thoughts before we press on? Okay. All right. So let's let's hone in, uh, hone in, however you say it, on a which one? Which one is it? Hone. Okay. Hone in on a definition then. Definition of true biblical worship. So a couple options. We've said that it's attributing worth to God. That's good, but it's incomplete. Uh, it's simply a response to God. That's good, but it's incomplete. Um, another option, the idea of magnifying God, right? That we're seeing Him uh, clear, as clearly as sort of like you use a, a telescope, right? That you, you have this great, grand, glorious object, and worship is focusing in and seeing Him clearly, magnifying God. Again, um, these, as far as they go, for very brief statements of definitions are, uh, are helpful in moving us there, but I don't think any of them encapsulates a full enough picture of worship for us to move forward. And so... Here are just a couple of comprehensive definitions. Really, I think we're just going to... Uh, my idea is that we're sort of shaping this as, as we go through the class, that we're going to have a starting point, and by the end, uh, probably we can offer a, a much better definition. But here's some better ones. Worship is an engagement with God on the terms that He proposes or commands and in the way that He alone makes possible... Right? Worship is an engagement with God on the terms that He proposes or commands and in the way that He alone makes possible. Another, worship is the response of all moral, uh, moral beings with feeling, thinking, cognitive powers, ascribing all honor and worth to their Creator God precisely because He is worthy, delightfully so. And so, if we were to kind of think through those and maybe pull them together, this is what I came up with. Worship is a conscious, joyful, and humble response of adoration and thanksgiving from all moral beings to the triune God on the terms He prescribes in the way He alone enables, done both privately and corporately. So... Kind of a mouthful. Worship is a conscious, joyful, and humble response of adoration and thanksgiving from all moral beings to the triune God on the terms He prescribes in the way He alone makes possible, which is done both privately and corporately. Thoughts on that? Pushback? Agreed. 
Um, and so I, I think, you know, maybe ideally we work on slimming it down and, and really thinking what is everything we've said, is it the essence of what worship is? Is there any fluff there? If you're talking with me, probably. It's probably more there than needs to be, but that's what you guys are for, to help me thin it out. And so I do, ha- I do have the hope and expectation as the class moves forward, we can, uh, while this is a, maybe a definition to begin with, um, that we can shape and mold it. And So please give me thoughts feedback, pushback as we go. Yeah. Absolutely. We're talking about the God of the universe. The infinite God. And so to put into words, to put Him into words is, He is inexhaustible. And so at some level when we talk about what it means to worship Him, I think we're probably, as finite creatures, we're always going to feel some sense of inadequacy and inability to think through it all. But, but God has revealed Himself and what He wants in worship. And so where it's not just these, not a blind stab in the dark, we have no idea what He wants. He has told us what He wants. And so... Yeah, um, that's, that's kind of the idea, that we're going to, we'll look at the way that worship is... Uh, the words concept, the way that concept is uh, revealed in the Old Testament, then we're going to look at it in the New Testament, and, and the idea is that all along the way we're going to consider. So it's not necessarily, we're not approaching it like point one now is worship is conscious, right? We won't necessarily do it that way. Um, but along the way we're going to consider and see part of our definition here when we said that it was adoration and thanksgiving, this is where we're drawing that from. Right? It's, it's a kind of a biblical, we're moving now into like a, a biblical theological uh, study of this concept where we're moved, uh, not necessarily chronologically, but that kind of how has this concept been revealed in certain uh, books, uh, you know, different parts of the Bible as we move forward in redemptive history. Does that kind of make sense how we're approaching this? And along the way we're going to say, we're going to be drawing and saying, and then these parts of our definition is where, where that's coming from. And then we can say, oh, that doesn't fit, and chunk it, or we can add to it or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, acknowledging who God is, what he's done, that's, that's good. Um, and so all of these things we want to kind of hold together in sort of attention of how much we could say, right? We want to say as much as possible in as clear and concise a way as possible. And that's, it's just, it can be a struggle. And so, um, that's what we're doing here. Uh, any other thoughts, definition, questions, rebukes? Okay. So when we talk, I, I mentioned that we're going to do this, we're going to take this biblical theological approach to this study. Um, and there's two things that we need to, when I say that, there's two things that we sort of need to define off the bat. That's biblical theology and systematic theology. Systematic theology, on the one hand, uh, according to D.A. Carson, is a theological synthesis organized along topical and atemporal lines. So the idea is, what does the Bible as a whole teach about God? 
What does the Bible teach about his attributes? What does it teach about what he does? What does the Bible say in conjunction with what other men have said throughout history? It is a categorizing, a systematizing of a certain doctrine. Um, and you're not looking at how it is, uh, how the idea moves from Genesis to Revelation. It's just as a whole, what does the Bible say? Biblical theology, on the other hand, is a theological synthesis organized according to book and corpus. Uh, which is just like body, right? A body, a group of books. And along the line of, re- of the history of redemption. So systematic theology asks big categorical questions of the whole Bible, essentially irrespective of the history and timeline of redemption. Biblical theology asks narrow questions of specific parts of the Bible, tracing the development of the revelation of the topic under consideration. So we'll look at both of these, but we begin with this biblical approach. So we're going to look from Genesis to Revelation as a seed to a tree, right? This organic, progressive growth of this revelation of Scripture. Because God doesn't come to Adam and then, boom, give him everything that he then later reveals, right? There is a, a movement, a trajectory, a development of Scripture. There's, there's, no, never, there's no contradictions, right? Just a fuller picture. When you have a seed, you have the tree, but it's in seed form. And so biblical theology traces, how does then biblical theology of worship trace this growth of this tree of worship? Does that, those distinctions kind of make sense? The way that I stated them, if you've not kind of heard them before. Okay. Sweet. Uh, basically, we don't want, you know, we're, we're looking at the forest and the trees is kind of the, the idea there. All right. First then, uh, as we consider spiritual theology of worship, there are concepts that we want to see how has, in the Old Testament now, how has worship how does it relate to different uh, to other concepts? How has that been revealed? So first, um, worship and revelation. How has the Old Testament revealed worship in connection with revelation, which, as we said, is the foundation upon which we are able to worship God's revelation. Worship touches nearly every biblical theological theme that there is. And so we want to consider what those relationships are. Unfortunately, we'll only be able to look at each of them kind of briefly, but we're, you know, we're only scratching the surface, but we're, trying to, we're starting to connect some dots. And so we've, so we've sort of got this... A skeleton of sorts, of a, of a definition and concept of what worship is, and now we want to fill it out. <clears throat> For many Christians, the Old Testament remains, this is a quote, remains a mysterious and seemingly irrelevant book. At no point does it appear more distant from the needs and aspirations of people in secularized culture than when it focuses on the temple the sacrificial system, and the priesthood. 
But these institutions were at the very heart of ancient thinking of worship and their significance must be grasped if the New Testament teaching is to be properly understood. That's a profound statement. That the Old Testament, while it seems distant, it's uh, very far removed from us culturally, much more so than the New Testament, that if we're understanding the New Testament's concept of worship, we have to understand the Old. And not, It's not unfortunate, but the trick is that many of the aspects of the Old Testament that seem most distant from us, the priesthood, the temple, the sacrificial system, those perhaps are some of the most important things that we need to grasp as far as the Old Testament teaches, and especially in this conversation about worship. So worship within the Old Testament, let's consider how it relates to these other themes. So holy places in the ancient world is important. Um, Locating the presence of a god was of extreme importance to people in the ancient world. People needed to know where a god could be found to establish a connection with him or her. Some kind of relationship. Certain places were then connected with certain deities in the minds of those of the ancient world. That you had these local, tribal deities because this is where so-and-so's presence could be found. The Canaanites, for example, had many sanctuaries dedicated to the gods. Baal, El, and Anat. All of these gods were said to have a dwelling place on a particular sacred mountain at some inaccessible point where heaven and earth met. Well, against this background, the Old Testament affirms God has revealed Himself, or God revealed Himself to the patriarchs at particular times and in particular places. In this revelation, He, as we said, initiates a relationship with them and with their descendants. Right? I will be your God, you will be my people. Over and over and over again, we hear this refrain. He promises to make from Abraham and his descendants a great nation so that all the peoples on the earth might be blessed through them. A lot of text to look at there, but we won't look at all of them. Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Would somebody read that? Of course. Good. Good, thank you. And so, uh, and he says down in verse 7 that the Lord appears to Abram and says to your offspring, I will give this land. And uh, we don't have time, but we could look at Chapter 13, 14 through 17, we could look at 15, 1 through 8, and 12 through 16, these different times where uh, God appears to uh, Abraham, and then there's others, his descendants, where uh, we are shown from these, uh, these encounters that a relationship with God must be enjoyed on the basis of what? God's self-revelation, right? 
that Abraham, Abram didn't know God in one sense, right? He was not in a relationship with God, or the relationship he was in as a moon worshiper, he was suppressing the truth, we might say, in unrighteousness. He's rejecting the God that he, that he knew. But as far as a personal, intimate, saving relationship with God, it must be based upon God's revelation. God comes to Abram first. Abram doesn't go to God. In the Old Testament, when God reveals Himself, this is important, He is not simply showing off His power, but He issues words of covenant promises and demands. God is not just showing up on the scene to let everyone know how great He is, He is doing that. But He's establishing relationships. He's not a God that is merely far off, uh, transcendent, right? It's the word that we use. There's transcendent and imminent. He's not merely distant, some God that we can pray to and just hope that He hears and cares, but He probably doesn't. No, He is the great and powerful God who comes near to His creation and establishes relationships. The patriarchs built altars all throughout the Promised Land as they sojourned through it to mark the sites where God had visited them. Uh, We see this down in that very passage, verse 7 and 8, right? The Lord appears to Abram, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. Um, uh, The next chapter, chapter 13, verses 14 through 18. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. And other places, 28, 10 through 22, uh, we see this, uh, this concept that God appears to Abram, to Abraham, patriarchs, and there are altars built, worshiped in God. And these altars, these sacrifices, right? That's perhaps something that we need to think, uh, work into. I don't into our definition, the concept of sacrifice. Um, Romans 12 talks about offer you know, your lives as living sacrifices. But these sacrifices were not to be offered anywhere that these men felt like. It wasn't just these random, oh, well, this is the most convenient place to set up an altar to the Lord. And uh, it's just really pragmatic. Uh, you know, a lot of people are going to see it and it's just going to be really good. No. They were done in specific places. They demonstrated that the men believed God's promises and acknowledged that the land actually belonged to God. Currently, the land was filled with 
pagans and other gods, but these altars were a statement of belief from the patriarchs that God actually owned the land and that He would give it to them at the right time. And yet, we know that God's dwelling place is where? Not here in temples made by human hands. Genesis 11, 5, right? They're building the Tower of Babel and God, what? Looks down from heaven. It's always a funny thing to me that here man is. We're building this great tower, a name for ourselves. We're going to, to bring ourselves up to God. This most majestic thing perhaps has been built up to that point and God has to look down to see it. 18, 21-17 or some other places where uh, we see this. Um, uh, in 18, um, God is talking about Sodom and uh, he says, I will go down to see whether they have done it together the outcry that has come to me. 2117. Uh, Hagar and Ishmael are cast out in the desert. And um, God heard the voice of the boy, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, right? So there's all these places that God dwells in heaven. And so these uh, these altars, these uh, places of, of sacrifice and worship were set up, not to say this is the place where God dwells, but this is where God has chosen to manifest to me His character and His glory, rather than saying this is His home where God may be found. Because God is not a local deity. God is not confined to uh, a certain square mileage uh, of a, a nation state or something. He is the, the Lord of all creation. His home is in heaven. And He has chosen to come here to reveal Himself to man. God's decisive revelation of Himself in the Old Testament occurs where? Where's like the place that God reveals Himself in the Old Testament. Sinai, right? Mount Sinai. After His mighty act of redeeming Israel out of Egypt, God draws near to Israel. He draws Israel to Himself. Exodus 19.4 You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings, and brought you to Myself. And here, He enables Israel to approach Him and to acknowledge Him as Rescuer. Uh, David Peterson says, Here the terms of the relationship were set out in great detail. And the pattern for acceptable worship was laid down by God at Sinai. And so, 
true worship in the Old Testament is seen as possible only in connection with the revelation of God. Only in response to and in light of God's revelation to man can man ever expect to rightly worship God. Uh, Okay, so we'll start the second one and maybe we'll get through it. Worship and redemption. So we've got one peg to uh, kind of hang the meat on later. We've got worship and revelation. Now worship and redemption. A second part, um, or second thing that we want to consider is that man's genius and creativity is not the beginning of worship. We've said that. God is the beginning of worship. God and His action toward mankind. In the Bible, God moves first toward His people to rescue them from their devotion to idols, and therefore they are free to worship Him. God not only reveals Himself to man, but He redeems man. Questions there? Probably should have asked a second ago about worship and revelation, but questions on that or whatever before we press on? Because maybe if you've got one, and we don't need to press on. Okay. So God reveals Himself to man. He redeems man. The book of Exodus makes clear that there is a link between Israel's worship practices and God's redemptive purposes. The narrative in Exodus tells us that the focal point of God's delivering Israel out of bondage in Egypt is for the purpose of divine service or worship. Exodus 3.17 7, not 17. 7 through 18. We'll probably pretty much have to close with this, but uh, would somebody read Exodus 3, 7 through... Well, we'll pick up there next week. Uh, I don't want to rush that. Um, I've got like a minute left, I guess. So uh, that's, this is where we'll close now, that uh, God reveals Himself, He redeems His people, and that uh, now that we're, we're going to look mostly at the book of Exodus for this. Uh, there's so much more that we could have said in, in Genesis, but Genesis, we're, kind of, we're looking at God reveals Himself. Exodus, He redeems. And so, He, re- he redeems for specific purpose of divine service or worship to Him. Any thoughts on that before I pray? Closing? I know I just asked, but now that we're pretty much done, closing thoughts? Okay.